You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation through the vast underground caverns of the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, and fandom. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience, have some fun. I know, I know, sometimes I get a little carried away. But hey, you know, that's what this is all about, right? I mean, discovery, teamwork, adventure. Today we're submerging into Disney's 41st film in the canon, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, came out in 2001. It's set in the early 1900s and features cool vehicles with mechanical problems, bizarre monsters, a ragtag crew, hot air balloons, volcanoes, submarines, mythology. What is not to love? So joining me to talk all that over, he's an expert in gibberish, and you can tell from his diminished physique and large forehead he's suited for nothing else. It's Michael Farmer. How's it going, Josh? Uh, it is. It, I'm, I'm ready to talk about this movie. I... Um, I, I came across a term while looking at this uh, movie um, that I'd not seen before. But, you know, usually this era of the of the Disney uh, time period is called the post-Renaissance, or you referred to it, I think, as like a, uh, a dumpster fire <laughs> era. Um, but I came across, uh, somebody called it the near misses era. And I really uh-huh. like that. I think that is, is a really good title for what we've seen so far. I think neither of us really knew what we were, we were getting into as we entered this era. I'd never seen this movie before until this week. Um, I've watched it twice now. It's better on the second time through than the first time, I think. And, um, yeah, I would say it is definitely in a, a near miss is a good a good way to describe it. Yeah, I, I, really... I think I would call it a a quasi hit. Like I I really I really thought I was going to hate this movie. Uh, and mm-hmm. as time went on in the movie, I started to really like it. And then as time went on, I started to like it less, but I still kind of like it. So so I think it hits, but I don't think it hits square on. Yeah, that's fair. It's kind of a. Glass half full, glass half empty. And as usual, you're the pessimistic one. (laughs) That's right. That's that's very true. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it's it's um like I like I said, it's it's got all the elements. I felt a little bit the way I did when we watched the Black Cauldron. Like why why didn't I know about this movie? Mm -hmm. I think I would have loved it if it if it would have hit 
me at the right time in the right place. You know, Although you would have been um, 20 years old when this came out, right? Which is probably too old for it. Yes, probably. But if you'd um, been 11 but, years old when it came out and had seen it, it would have blown you away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, because I, all the stuff that kind of bother me right now, I, I, I think would have went over, over, not over my head. It's not, it's not like a like jokes. I'm not getting. What's, what's the right term for it? It's just I, it wouldn't have bothered me the same. Like right, 11 right. year olds. Like the narrative cohesiveness doesn't bother an 11 year old the way it maybe bothers me. The one with this for me, especially the first time through, there was just a, t- a few t- too many places where I was scratching my head and I was like, did I miss something, yeah. or or am I not understanding something? And you know, that's that's just I don't I don't want to feel stupid watching a Disney movie. <laughs> well, it's, it's just Josh. It's they have so many elements in this movie and they throw them all together and a lot of them hit, but they don't hit in the same way. You know, I mean, it, it, the movie seems like it's going to be one thing and then it becomes something else and then it becomes something else and then it becomes something else and then it becomes something else. And it holds on to all of those things, kind of. But eventually all the balls come flying down. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a That's a really good way of putting it, because, um, yeah, at the start of this movie, uh, you you're you're an, immediately thrust into this world of Atlantis. Um, and, but you don't really know what's going on. There's flying battleships. The, the waves are crashing in. There's, there's some sort of, it it seems like an alien abduction is what it seems like (laughs) at the very get go, you know, um, before you know anything. And then, um, and then we leave all that to, to head to the present. Um, you get a very, um, Indiana Jones vibe, I would say at the Mm -hmm. beginning. And also Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jules Verne is obviously a huge influence on the on this movie, um, and I mean the, they acknowledge that uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, you know, are both both uh, clear, you know, Jules Verne things that they're that they're touching on here, as well as I mean I'm I'm sure they would acknowledge the Indiana Jones, um, you know, type thing too. You sure, gotta sure. Well, you have got the, the professor as the. Uh as the action hero, although Indiana Jones is a little bit more of a conventional action hero than Milo here is. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you've got the, the journal that he's after, you know, which, um, you know, similar to, um, uh, what, um, sorry, I just lost my, I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I don't know my Indiana Jones movies here. Um, it's not Raiders. What's the other one? Temple of Doom. No, no, no. Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Yeah, Last Crusade. You know, Last Crusade, he's got the journal that he's... Oh, right, right, you know, right. ...all in through and stuff, so... Yeah, anyway. <clears throat> uh, and yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... But then you're right, like, it kind of changes. It, it becomes... Uh, a heist movie? A little bit about... Right, it becomes Armageddon. Yep. It be- it becomes this ensemble. It's not exactly a heist movie, but you know what I mean. Where it's each of these person is the people is the best person at what they do. But oh look, uh, none of them get along. They're all misfits and they're all different varieties of weird. It's it's a very. Yep. I mean, I guess it's Dirty Dozen or Magnificent Seven. But at the time the movie came out, I'm sure that Armageddon was the most recent movie like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's kind of that blend of. Because you're right, I think heist movie must be where that 
kind of trope, whatever that ragtag team trope is, originated. But then sci-fi kind of picked it up and ran with it, right? Right. Well, you, I mean, Armageddon is kind of a heist movie if you think about it. They're just they're, instead of trying to to rob a casino, they're they're trying to blow up a meteor or whatever. I think yeah. that's what happens in Armageddon. I haven't seen it since high school. Yeah, neither have I. But I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you see it in more modern things like Guardians of the Galaxy too, right? right? Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it becomes that for a little while, which to me is the strongest part of the movie. Like that's that's the part of this movie where I was really a hundred percent on board. All that stuff, uh, getting to Atlantis with with all these various characters who are all very strange and uh, strange in different ways, and and they all have a fairly well developed story, given how little screen time each one of them gets. So I I thought that was. Uh, I, I thought that was a really fun part of the movie. Yeah, this is the part that for me, the second time through really helped because I felt the first time through you're meeting all these characters and it is very quick right. to get like you're getting, you know, 30 seconds of them in order to get, you know, what's their 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 general demeanor and their quirk. You know, <laughs> like those are like kind of the two things that you're getting um, on each beat and and. And there's so much happening. It, it was hard to know, like, what what are you even paying attention to? Which ones of these are background characters and which ones are actually going to be part of this team that's coming together? Like, it was just it was very fast. Um, I felt the first time through the second time through it, it made more sense. Um, I still feel like there's a little bit of, you know, they were it's more you could tell what they were trying to do than they were actually achieving it for me. You know, as far if as the movie had an additional 15 minutes to, to do that part of the movie, I think it probably would have been more effective. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're, you're, they're trying to establish this heart and they're trying to establish, um, you know, how they, how these character interactions work and, and is this team going to come together and are they going to trust Milo? But it all like, it all just it all happens very fast and and I think some of those parts are the parts where Milo's um, Milo in particular like he's got a little um, what his character is just kind of all over the place mm-hmm. like is he meant to be like is he meant to be quirky is he meant to be nerdy is he meant to be like kind of an absent-minded professor like what is he exactly you know and I felt like um, if if they'd nailed down who he was and his relationship with the team a little stronger then it would have worked. But for me, it was kind of like, okay, one point he's, he's honking a horn, like a goofball. Another time he's um, lighting the camp on fire, but then not really of any like fault of his own. And then, you know, he's, he's studying his book and then, and then Joshua sweet, the medic is like, Hey, we've been hard on him. Let's invite him in. (laughs) Right. right. It just, it does, it does happen fast. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I know I was a little out of, out of whack chronologically there, but you know, like it's just that, that part of the movie, that, that was my, my beef with that part of the movie, but I do agree. Um, sorry, I'm talking a lot. I need to let you talk here. Um, I talk too much on the show anyway, so we're good. (laughs) Yeah. I was watching the documentary on this movie and they talked about how that initially that, that stretch of getting to Atlantis was so long um, that people were saying, like, isn't this a movie about Atlantis? When are they going to get to Atlantis? Um, and but the other thing was that they just had many more monster fights and many more like setbacks and obstacles. And so then they came through with this idea of actually it's it's back it's a monster parade is what they called it in the documentary. You know, it's just like 
bam, 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 you're fighting this monster, fighting this monster, fighting this monster, which was not working. So then they, you know, they moved into the the uh, the character beats, which I think was the right decision, because I think you're right. Like, it makes the movie much stronger, but it's just a little not quite... I wouldn't say it was my, you know, like you said, it was your one of your, your where you were really on board with the movie, and I think it for me it was a little. Hmm, I can see what you're doing, and and I appreciate that you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like if the whole movie had been them trying to get to Atlantis, and then they get to Atlantis at the very end of the movie, I would have liked it more. Uh-huh. Um, I I I felt things slow down a bit when they get to Atlantis, and that's a problem, and then. You know, then it gets really bad, I think. Maybe not really bad, but then it gets very disjointed. Uh-huh. Um, it's 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 never a bad movie, but the the parts don't hold together, and so you just kind of pick whichever part you want, and you wish that part was longer. Uh, that's... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's really it. I think it it, it really is three or four different kinds of movie thrown together, just like just like that that second part of the movie with all the different characters is characters from five or six different kinds of movies thrown together. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, there's an admirability in it. Like they were they were obviously trying to tap into things that they loved you know they're like oh we like these action adventure type movies and we like these types of characters and we like you know uh like what if we just throw that all into the same stew and see what comes out and so yeah there's there's some there's a there's a coolness to the fact that they tried that but you're right that it doesn't and yeah it doesn't all the flavors don't quite blend (laughs) it's a little bit like cookies cooking i guess (laughs) So what what'd you think of the part after this when they actually get to Atlantis and it turns into Fern Gully, the last rainforest? <laughs> There's a lot of that. I mean, we reference, or you reference in particular, that movie a lot because there is that sort of, what, like when you bring that up, like what it, it's, it's kind of the environmental angle or... Yeah, or although what? here but, it's not exactly environmental. This is th- This section of the movie is what I imagine the movie Avatar to be, although I haven't seen Avatar, so I can't speak to that. It, it's kind of um, a fantastic version of Dances with Wolves, if you've seen that. It's like, this is an ancient people yeah. who are closer to the fabric of the universe than the rest of us, and our response is to want to destroy them because we can't make any money off of them. <laughs> yeah i mean there's a little yeah that's a little pocahontas it's a little um uh in a different way tarzan you know like tar- uh because yeah in, in tarzan the the gorillas are are kind of the stand-in for that that type of people who are closer to nature or whatever right 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 although this is this is so much more fantastic even than tarzan yeah well, <laughs> yeah tarzan didn't take place under the ocean yeah and they, and they weren't <laughs> Uh, tens of thousands of years old <laughs> yeah so i you know and they they did a couple of things during that section i thought they were going to explore more fully and they didn't when when she talked about how their culture was dying i thought mm-hmm. oh awesome they're going to talk about how this culture in being removed from all of their cultures for ten thousand years is starting to decay from the inside which is what happens with cultures, you know, like you need you need cultural mixing in order to keep cultures alive. But they didn't go that direction. And I was disappointed with that uh-huh. because that, yeah, that is certainly something I've never seen in a children's movie. Right. 
Well, and I think it's something where they didn't seem to quite have the answer mm -hmm. to what they wanted Atlantis to be, right? right? Like, um, so what it ends up being is the the king was a bit of a I don't know if he was a tyrant, but he was you know in in the pre sinking days before the flood or whatever they were um he was trying to harness this power himself you know to um to fight wars or to conquer nations or whatever he was trying to do you know um that it's it's kind of glossed over um and so then because he he couldn't control it and he lost his wife to it he buried it and so i guess that's the idea is like it's it's there sustaining them, but it's not doing anything else for them because um, he's hidden it. Is that is that what you got out of this? <laughs> that was that's my impression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. Then it's just like, well, how's the like to get back to your like thing about you know the the trope or the the theme is like okay we're you know westerners i guess quote unquote are coming in and and uh um and exploiting something um it's kind of a cool twist i guess that he's already like learned the the perils of of exploiting power and and he's trying to avoid it but it's like he didn't fully learn the lesson like he didn't he didn't come all the way around to where He's not just exploiting, he's not exploiting the power, but he's also, um, what, integrated with the power in some sort of healthy way. Right. Right. Which is where they end up at the end of the movie. Sort of, but sort of not, because they're still completely isolated and, and planning to stay that way. Like, the, at the, the movie basically ends with them figuring out what's the cover story. Like, we never found Atlantis. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so these, these isolated cultures, shouldn't be disturbed which i mean there's an argument for that right but it it, do, it does feel like they were moving towards something that they decided not to move toward also if they're really not supposed to be disturbed maybe don't make the white american your king <laughs> i was confused by that as well the the the, uh, the atlantans seem to not be in charge of their own country they they need they need this guy who's known them for 45 minutes to to save them. And in fact, very few of them even seem to join the final battle against Rourke. Uh, this is, it's, it's a real white man's burden situation. You're getting there. Yeah. I didn't notice that as much as, I mean, you're like when the King says it's your thing now, I was like, what? Yeah. Why? But aren't there, aren't there hundreds of Atlantans whose thing it could be? <laughs> yeah. There's two right there, you know, like next to him, like his, I don't know if they're just serpents or advisors or whatever they are. I'm like, so yeah, there's another movie hidden in here also, you know, of like the, the Atlanteans who are, who are, uh, who are upset by their King's last bad decision in a whole line of bad decisions. Um, <laughs> I think if they made this movie today, I think that's probably what would have happened. The, the Milo would be serving whatever Atlantan had taken over rather than, becoming the king of atlantis himself yeah there is a real um what like uh it's not just a white man's burden thing though like it's also like he's the only one apparently in the entire nation who can read so well that i thought was interesting um 
So the myth of Atlantis is based on a culture called the Minoans who lived in Crete and on this the island that is now Santorini. And they, they lived there, uh, gosh, I don't know, 1500 BC, a, a long time ago, before mainland Greece had really taken off, certainly, um, cer- certainly before any culture outside the Near East had taken off. And what happens to the Minoans is there is a volcano on that island, not on Crete, but on the, the island that's Santorini. And it explodes so hard that it actually turns the island inside out. And uh, and the earthquake and the tidal waves do all sorts of stuff to Crete, too. And that's where the myth of Atlantis comes from, they think. Well, huh. one interesting thing that happens after the Minoans, the, uh, the the group of people on the Greek mainland are called the, the Mycenaeans, I think it's pronounced. And the Mycenaeans lose language. I mean, they don't lose spoken language, but they lose the written language. That's a thing that actually follows the destruction of, um, of Crete. Uh, because if you're not trading with anybody in the ancient world, you don't really need a language. And so uh-huh. the language they were using is called, I think, Linear B is the name of the language. And it completely falls into disuse because there's no reason to use it anymore. So I think that's what they were nodding to with, with the idea that none of the all the Atlantans can speak every language, but none of them can read. Because if you're not trading, especially back then, there's really no reason to have a written language. Um, so I, I wondered if that's what they were going for, especially since Milo is a linguist. Uh, I, I think I think maybe they're basing it off of the the loss of uh, of linear B. Hmm. That is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's I mean, that's actually like super fascinating. Like just the the whole idea of um, just you know the way the way cultures devolve, you know. Right. Um, right. Well, because... that's that's why I thought that's where they were going with this thing where she says our culture is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, but it. You know, they went to magic instead, instead of in, instead of just something that to me would have been more philosophically interesting. Yeah, but I also feel like they just didn't. They, our culture is dying. Like, just needed. They needed some sort of problem. Like, they couldn't be a, they couldn't be a utopian perfect people for this movie. Like, they needed something, you know, um, for Milo to solve by being there right but the thing the thing he solved is just a macguffin you know it's it's this this magical crystal that apparently no one had ever thought to look for before yeah (laughs) well there's yeah (laughs) there's a lot of questions i mean maybe so i guess headcanon because it's definitely not laid out in the movie you know maybe it's only the royal line that has the super long-lived lives and so the majority majority of Atlanteans are, you know, would not have ever known or thought of this thing because it's been generations and generations of just, you know, living. And it's only basically the king and, and Kida that, that would even know about it. Mm-hmm. And Kida only remembers it from when she was four years old. I don't know. Otherwise, I really can't make sense of it. Like, I don't understand, like, if everybody's super long lived, like if they're like, you know, some sort of elves or something, um, just living these super long lives like how come they like what's what's diminishing them you know <laughs> like there's nothing there's I, I don't i don't get it you know it seems like the people who were able to read and and remember the stories and you know perhaps even were you know 
not not in not in line with what their king was doing like some of them would have survived as the city sank too right right and and here again you know if the movie had been longer if there had been more if there if they had devoted more time to actually explaining some of these things it really probably should have been two movies well there is a sequel <laughs> right <laughs> i've never heard anything good about the sequel i don't know about you milo's return yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't really think about it either. Um, but what if the first movie had been this kind of Jules Verne Indiana Jones adventure story, and then they get to Atlantis at the end of that movie, and the second movie is this this kind of metaphysical, cultural exploration of what it means to be an Atlantan? I mean, what I'm asking for is a a you know a blockbuster movie, and then a, a kind of weird Terrence Malick type <laughs> movie, I guess. So that yeah. probably wasn't going to happen. Probably not. But I think you're right. Like, I think they just, they didn't know what to do with Atlantis once they got there. And honest, and, you know, maybe part of that is that Jules Verne didn't either. You know, like when Jules, like, so in uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, they they basically just skip over Atlantis. You know, like they stop there for a minute or whatever, but there's there's no civilization there or whatever. And so, like, maybe that's, you know, Disney saw that as an opportunity but maybe that was just, you know, a problem that was <laughs> it was too big for them to solve, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine an, an alternate society, I think. It like, really is. And it, it, Atlantis, you know, it's it's been the alternate society for all of Western human history, essentially. Plato, I mean, the, the part at the beginning of the movie has the quote from Plato from the uh, from the Timaeus. I mean, Plato's talking about it in the in the fourth century BC, mm-hmm. you, you know, like there's all this stuff about it being this super advanced technological society. I, I guess you could do something with it, but it, it seems to me that they went the Thor route where instead of it being technology, it was technology that's so advanced that it may as well be magic. Mm-hmm. And, and for, for that reason, I, I, you know, I thought the first two Thor movies were also pretty weak. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good point. I, you know, I I barely remember those first two Thor movies. So <laughs> the second one in particular is is bad. I mean, the the first one is fun because when he comes back to Earth, it's um, or when he comes to Earth to begin with, it's it's interesting. But it's it's just hard to make that kind of super advanced alien technology society interesting. I think, and and with Atlantis, you have the added problem that it is simultaneously super advanced and super primitive. Yeah, it's super advanced for 8,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and it's still advanced for now, but also the culture is dying and you need the white man to come in and fix it. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you how do you square that circle? Well, poorly, I guess, is the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's the the... In your opening, you said you you liked it, and then you I forget how how exactly you worded it, but then you said you know by the end you you still liked it, but I, I think I think you and I it's that it's that third act once they get to Atlantis that they really lost me. Um, so I think you and I are both agreeing that that the the first part of the movie, the adventure, the when the when the MacGuffin is really in play, and they're like, okay, how are they going to get to Atlantis? Like that's the much more interesting part of the movie. Well, and I I was intrigued by some of the stuff when you get to Atlantis on this kind of metaphysical philosophical level. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I didn't think it worked very well as a movie. And then the what I would call the third act, once it's revealed that Rourke is a what does he call himself? An adventure capitalist? Yeah, I think so. A mercenary. <laughs> I thought that was the weakest part of the movie, um, where it just kind of devolves into an action movie again. Yeah. Yeah, there's some cool stuff in there, but you're right. Like it's, it's. I think that's where the. That's where the the part I was mentioning earlier, where if 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 you believed in these characters as a team a little bit more then they're fighting together and you know trying to defeat the bad guy and stuff would would pay off a little better than it does um well and here, and here again having more time would be good because they they're all with Rourke and then like that they all just decide that they're going to be with Milo instead. And I believe that transition, but I, I would like a little bit more time. I mean, it, it right. took, what's the, what's the femme fatale's name? Helga. Yeah. Helga. It took her a long time and you see why she did it. It would have been nice to have that sort of development with the other characters, but inst- instead they all move from mercenary to noble very quickly. Too quickly. Right. And it's interesting because the first part of the movie the first part of the movie set, takes time and sets them up as being semi-trustworthy, right? Like uh-huh. they're all kind of dangerous. So why make them switch so quickly unless you just want to keep this movie to an hour and a half? Yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off, Josh. What were you saying? It's okay. I was just I was just gonna say Rourke says you you picked an interesting time to grow conscious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. He agrees. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's really just because he he punches, he sucker punches Milo. Like that's the big thing, you know. Like that's the thing that turns them. I guess that and Milo's speech. Milo right. gives him a speech and and kind of warms him up to the idea of of changing to his side. And then Rourke, Rourke seals the deal with the with the sucker punch. Him punching him is some grade A villainy. Mm-hmm. Like it was just so unnecessary and so wonderful. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm in favor of that scene. Yeah. Yeah, Rourke is a pretty, uh, he's a pretty good bad guy. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You you like him at first for the same reasons you dislike him later, that he has just no, uh, no second guessing himself about what he wants and what he's going to do. Like that mm-hmm. makes him appealing when you think he's on your side. And when it's clear it's not, it makes him infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that he would kill Helga, you know. Like, yeah, that was pretty. That was a pretty dark turn. Right, right. <laughs> but it 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 made it made him more effective as a villain. I mean, we've seen we've seen villains who do things like that. Um, oh yeah, and sure. They, they tend to be the more effective ones. Mm-hmm. Not for nothing, this movie's rated PG, right? It's the, the third one that's rated PG, after Black Cauldron and Dinosaur. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. And, you know, like Black Cauldron and like Dinosaur, this is a movie pitched at boys, at preteen boys. Mm-hmm. And like Black Cauldron and Dinosaur, it doesn't really, it doesn't quite land. Yeah. And it was a flop. Yeah, which is too, I, I don't I, wanna, I don't know if I want to say it's too bad. I don't know if I want to go that far. But, like, I, I really like, so I saw one criticism of this movie uh, that I really felt like I, I really was, I didn't 
what I was just against it. Like I just like at a gut as a visceral visceral reaction to it, you know. And it's like basically their criticism was that it wasn't, uh, you know, enough of a kids movie or a princess movie or whatever, you know. Like there's no there's no singing, there's no talking animals, and like that sort of thing. Like ah, like it just really gets under my skin. Like I feel like animation can be uh so much more and can be you know and by this point has pretty much proven to be um capable of of taking on most any genre you know like it's it's just a medium um in a sense but there's a uh it it feels like they just they disney never got the practice at it you know the way they did with with other genres because every time they would try to do something different it would fail and then they weren't willing to continue to pursue that line. Right. Although not entirely. I mean, there were people, you know, on this film who were, who were there way back with black cauldron too, you know? So you can see that the, the, the ideas kind of live on within the studio, but you'd really feel like, man, if they could have made two or three action adventure films, like, would they have been able to like just nail it in the way that, you know, when they were able to do several musicals in a row, um, you know, they were just really able to nail it, you know. And it is, I mean, it is something they return to every every few years. I mean, we're going to get to Treasure Planet, which um, which I have not seen, but I mean, isn't it's that's another action adventure movie. Meet the mm-hmm. Robinsons is, a, is is kind of a action adventure movie, action adventure sci fi head trip. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it is it is a well they continue to return to, and maybe maybe they finally really succeed commercially with uh, Tangled, because Tangled is a is an action adventure movie. It's just an action adventure movie that presents itself as a as a, <laughs> as, a as a princess movie. movie. Yeah. And musical, right? Because right. it's got the music elements too. Yeah. So they put it. Yeah. Tangled. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But you're right. They really they really pull a lot of these elements together in Tangled, and it works. Tangled, Tangled really works. I really like Tangled. I haven't so. seen it since it came out, but I remember liking it. Gosh, that was... I don't want to think about how long ago that was. Excuse <laughs> me. That's all right. That's having a moment there. This movie is 20 years old, which um, seems crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is another one of those like, um, like Black Cauldron, like... Uh, like Hunchback of Notre Dame to some extent, where they're they're trying to uh-huh. do something different, and they just it just it doesn't land as well as as it should, you know. Right, and we should say that the the producer and director team. So the producer is Don Hahn, who produced a gazillion things at Disney, and then Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale. So kind of that trio. Um, they're this, you know, they both. Or those, that sorry, they both that trio. They both. I, I'm like a. <laughs> what am I talking about? Anyway, they did uh, Beauty and the Beast, and they did Hunchback of Notre Dame, and they did Atlantis. Like those are the three movies that 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 trio uh, produced and directed together. Well, and so you can. This was the end of the director's career. Right. Like, yeah. I don't like, think either yeah. one of them have done a full length feature since this. That's that's well, that's the reputation of this movie. Right, which is unfortunate because I mean they they still have Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback in there. You also, would think you know? doing Beauty and the Beast would let you write a blank check for the rest of your life, but I guess I don't understand show business. Yeah, you know who else well, has career they... this killed? Who's that? Michael Eisner. Oh, this really? is the movie that got this him pushed out of Disney. I didn't know that. 
Is there more to that story that you that you know that you want to tell? I don't. I but I do know that you know he'd had he'd had one too many flops in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this. There was uh, Emperor's New Groove, which I think we both agree is a wonderful movie. And uh, there was Dinosaur and Fantasia 2000, and it's just you know you you can't keep. I guess you can't keep uh, turning in movies with mediocre box office performance and make uh, make hundreds of billions of dollars a year like Eisner was. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's also the he also uh, unveils California Ad- Adventure, the uh, the failed theme park in um, California that they ended up having to to redo pretty substantially. Um, and I, I think I think he, I think he just had the stink of failure around him, um, you know, and he was making a lot of questionable artistic decisions at the time anyway. So in some ways, it was good that he got pushed out, but. Uh, you know, he he's responsible for some some good things as much of a punching bag as he is on this show sometimes. Yeah. Well, Eisner, I'm gonna say you got the raw end of the deal on this one, and if you ever want to come, you know, and and talk about it on the show, <laughs> you're you're more than welcome. You can talk about. It. <laughs> we'll even break. Yeah. <laughs> we'll break up our chronological conversation for you. We will talk about any movie you want to. But we'll charge our normal fifty million dollar fee for guests <laughs> for Eisner. I mean, everybody else yeah. has been willing to pay it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is this is the end of an era in a lot of ways. Although it, it, you know, we've got three or four more movies after this one that that feel like they belong to the same era. Um, you 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 got a parting of the ways here that's that's pretty important. Yeah. And I think some of that is just lead time on movies, right. you know, like the other movies that we're going to be seeing in the next couple of years are already well into development by the time that, right. that we're. Yeah, he would have greenlit Treasure Planet and Brother Bear and all the rest. Yeah. So. Yeah. Hmm. The other thing about this movie, though, is we're talking about like how it, you know, pushes against the edges of uh, animation a little bit and where does it draw back upon their history. One thing that I thought was cool in the um, in the documentary was that the directors both talked about how they were also trying to draw back on some of the early Disney live action stuff, um, which I thought was kind of cool, you know, like within the within the company you know, drawing back upon, you know, Swiss Family Robinson. And uh, there is there is a Disney version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, with uh, Kirk Douglas Tre- as, as Captain yeah, and, and Treasure Island. And so, um, yeah, like, it, you know, I, I know the focus on our show is, is the animation, but there, it's true that, you know, for a lot of the animators working at Disney by this time, you know, they've grown up with not only the Disney animation, but also, you know, those other, you know, 60s and 70s Disney movies as well. So, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't considered that. And I've never seen any of those movies, so I probably couldn't have considered it. Yeah. Uh, Swiss Family Robinson is the only one I think I've I've seen of those. But I that, may that have was... seen 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was a kid, but I don't remember anything about it. Yeah. But you're such a big park fan. Like yes. uh, they mentioned, like. You know, Disney has been or sorry, the animated studios has been kind of doing a lot of things that end up in Fantasyland. And, and they purposely wanted to do something that that would have a home in Adventureland. Well, Victoria and I were actually trying to she asked me if there was when we were watching it, she asked if there was any presence of this in the parks. And I said no, because it was a huge flop. I, like, I don't think 
I don't think I've ever seen anything. But also, where would you put it? Adventureland is more 1930s, 1940s jungle type stuff. Uh It would almost belong in Tomorrowland even though it's set in the past, but it's got that kind of steampunk version. Where it would really belong is the French version. The Disneyland Paris version of Tomorrowland is called... Oh, gosh. It's called something else, but it's all Jules Verne-themed, and it would fit It would fit in there, obviously. Yeah. That's cool. I didn't know that about Disneyland Paris. It's the one thing that would... I mean, I, I've often said that I would have to live in France for a month you know, going to France for a week or two, I, I would not go to Disneyland Paris. I, I, I find something kind of horrifying about that. But if I mm-hmm. if I stayed there for a summer, um, I, I might I might go because I would really like to see the Jules Verne Tomorrowland. Right. Are you a pretty big Jules Verne fan? Uh, I've read um, Around the World in Eighty Days, which is wonderful, and I've read Twenty Thousand Under the Leagues, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which I also liked, but I haven't read Journey to the Center of the Earth or From the Earth to the Moon. Mm-hmm. Or any of his other like eighty-five books. Right. Yeah, he has a lot. Yeah, I um, yeah, I read I read a few of them. I think probably those the same that you did. You know, kind of the the, the really big ones. Um, but I don't I don't I don't have a a real memory of them. I remember enjoying them at the time, but though you know, as a kid when I was reading those. So I I was introduced to Jules Verne by um Dr. Emmett Brown. Yeah, me too. <laughs> which you know it must be said this movie also owes something to back to the future three mm-hmm. that kind of steampunk vision and you know not for nothing michael j fox is is the lead here yeah how'd you feel about him in the role of milo i have loved michael j fox ever since i was a kid so i'm not terribly objective about him but i thought he was good it was kind of an odd choice for a for a you know a linguist main character um, Mm -hmm. because Michael J. Fox always sounds like a teenager, even as an adult. But um, I I thought he did a good job, but you know, he's the straight man in a lot of ways, especially in the, in the first half of the movie. So his job is kind of to get out of the way and let all these character actors do their thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I couldn't quite, I think, and I don't know if it was, if it was, um, Michael J. Fox, or if it was just the character of Milo, which I already discussed about how I, I he felt a little uneven to me. Um, like you said, like yeah, so at at points he's the straight man, and then at other points he's supposed to be the, um, I don't know, kind of wacky, and I I don't know, I just I never got a good feel for him, um, what he was what he was supposed to be. I I feel like Michael J. Fox does a great job, like, of being really cool. You know, like who's cooler than Marty McFly? Right. But at the same time, like Marty McFly is supposed to be kind of a, you know, an outsider. Right. And an and a and the, with Marty McFly, it works. He's not you know, a like nerd, but he is. He's not a, like he's he's a loser. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's a slacker. His <laughs> father was um, a slacker too. I turned to Victoria during the movie and I said, "No thatch has ever amounted to anything in the history of Washington D.C." <laughs> oh that's perfect but i I think that's one reason they got him right because our association with him is on the one hand marty mcfly and on the other hand alex p keaton who was also a weird kind of cool right i don't know if you ever watched uh family to us uh i'm aware of it but i i yeah i I know i that's it i'm aware he's fantastic on the show and i mean that's that's another interesting character because the idea is um his parents are both hippies and he came out like a 
hardcore Reagan fan in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so he too is, is, you know, he's a dweeb in some ways. He's, he's super into Reagan and Republican economics, but at the same time, he's Michael J. Fox. So he's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so I felt like with the character of Milo, I couldn't decide how cool Milo was supposed to be. Right. You know, like I felt, I felt like Michael J. Fox was maybe a little too cool for Milo. Um, just the way he was drawn or I don't know, just like I said, he was just kind of uneven as a character. So, yeah, I would agree with that. In some ways, it's like they combine Marty and the Doc in one character. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, there you go. That's that's it. He should have he should have been played by uh... <laughs> by Christopher Lloyd. By Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> I don't know if Christopher Lloyd could do the straight man Brit though. No, I, I think I think that performance might have been too big for this movie. <laughs> you need someone who's not huge in this movie. Everybody else is so big. Yeah. Who's your favorite of the uh, of the others? Vinny. Oh, me too. Yeah, totally. yeah. Played by Don Novello, who's I think probably only known for playing Father Guido Scarducci uh, on Saturday Night Live. You know him, the chain, the chain smoking Catholic priest who who does commentaries. <laughs> no, I'm, I must have missed that area of uh, Saturday Night Live. He was never a cast member, but they brought him on Weekend Update frequently. Oh, okay. This is in the 70s. But in, anyway, he's just hysterical. And apparently the entire part is improvised. Like there was a script and he just <laughs> wouldn't do it at all. He just made up every line he, he spoke. <laughs> I love that. He, I don't think he says a thing in the movie that doesn't make me laugh. Yeah, he's really great. And I loved <clears throat> um, Sweet, the, the Phil Morris, African-American, Native American medic character. Mm-hmm. I thought he was I, I thought that was a really good performance as well. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. His uh, his line about the the saw that can cut through the femur in 24 seconds, but he's pretty sure he can get it down half that or whatever is pretty pretty funny. Speaking of um, we we talked so much about Patrick Warburton last time. Um, Phil Morris is from Seinfeld too. He plays Jackie Childs. Oh yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> It's funny. It's a, the, the two pretty different characters, as it turns out. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have put that together. That's funny. Hmm. But I thought, um, I thought that whole roster uh, was good, and and they're they're smart enough to have the different characters kind of be different levels of loud. Not everybody is not everybody is as big as Don Novello. I thought. Um, I'm looking up her name because I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, Jacqueline Oberdors, who plays the uh, the Puerto Rican mechanic teenager, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really subtle performance that that played very well against some of the bigger ones that she's in contact mm-hmm. with. Yeah, yeah, I liked her. I mean, I like. Yeah, I agree with you. I liked them all. Mole was a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> a little of him went a long way. That's the that's the part that would have gone to the animal sidekick in a, in the in the earlier movies, and I'm I'm very glad it didn't in this one. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, do you know the history of that trope, the mole mole character? There's a mole uh, comic book character, and then of course there's a in the um in the Incredibles there's the Underminer, who's basically this guy, like same vehicle and everything. That's true. I didn't think about that. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's just very strange, very weird. I mean, he was kind of destined to be a mole because his name is Moliere. Yeah, couldn't help it. I thought probably the weakest of those characters was Jim Varney as the the kind of prospector cook. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, even even that had its moments, and it, of course Jim Varney died while they were making the uh, the movie, and you could hear it. Oh my goodness! Did you, like the the. Um, you you can hear his lung cancer, in my opinion. If you compare this to, to his other roles, it's his voice is so much mm. deeper and shaggier. Yeah, I do, I'm not familiar enough with the with his voice to to say. Oh sure, he's um Slinky Dog from, oh, from yeah? Toy Story, and okay. also he's Ernest. In Ernest Saves Christmas. Yeah, in all those Ernest movies. <laughs> That was just the first one I could remember. Play, Ernest goes to jail. Ernest goes. He's he's, he's, he's in that Ernest one too. In fact, I think he's in all the Ernest movies and the Ernest uh, Saturday morning TV show. You know what I mean, Vern? So I mean, he he was fine. I I, I there, he he had his moments. I thought he he threatened to go off the rails a couple times, but I I I thought that the roster there was uh, was really deep, and they, they did not go with a whole lot of huge names. I mean, he's probably wouldn't you say the biggest name in the in that group in in terms of I mean James Garner is a big name, but it's not like James Garner was making huge blockbuster movies in the nineties. Yeah, I think so. There's no I mean, Robin I'm, Williams I, type, is what I'm saying. It's right, all, it's all yeah, character but, actors. Although Robin Williams was a character actor, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, <laughs> there's no stunt casting. Yeah, that's right. Except for Leonard Nimoy, maybe. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose Leonard Nimoy. Is that stunt casting? Yeah, I don't we'll know. talk about a thankless part. I mean, he, yeah, he he's probably has he's 15 the lines the whole movie. Yeah. He's the, he's the king for people who, who are following along at home. Right, sorry. <laughs> We're attempting to follow along at home. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah the, the king is another... I mean, we talked about the problems with the king already. Like, just didn't didn't quite come together, you know? Half, half learned his lesson or... He's a weird part. It wasn't clear what we were supposed to think about him. Yeah. Like, were we supposed to think of him the way we think of uh, whatever the mean head gorilla is in Tarzan? Mm. Are we supposed to think of him the way we think of the Sultan from Aladdin? You know? Yeah. Does, does he just want what's best for his daughter, like the Sultan? Or, you know, is is he, you know, actually wiser than everybody else, like King Triton? Or is he, you know... A bigot like the what is what is that stupid gorilla's name from Tarzan? <laughs> uh, what is his name? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like he belongs in a line with with those people, but also it's it's not really clear because he's not developed enough, and the world isn't developed right. enough. It's not clear. Um, it's not clear what attitude we're supposed to have toward him. Right. Or Pocahontas's father, right? Maybe there's a little bit of that in there. Right. But yeah, he's just kind of uh, yeah, he's just kind of un- uninteresting because you don't know exactly where he fits. 
or what he's supposed to be doing. Well, and the same is true of Keita. I mean, she she doesn't really have a personality. She's not she's not developed as a character. She's just beautiful and and mysterious. And she spends half of the time she's in the movie, she spends locked up in a crystal. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, again, that's fine, but it it does mean that none of the Atlantans really have a personality. Yeah. Yeah, she chose in that crystal, and that was that was another part that bugged me. Yeah, I think Kita is the, maybe part of the thing that bugged me. I didn't like how she. So okay, so Pocahontas, we have Pocahontas can immediately speak English through the magic of love right. or something, right? Right. Um, but I felt like it was it was fine. I don't know why, and I I don't know. Maybe you can help me take this apart. Like it was fine. Um, maybe it's because they just said it's the magic of love. Here they tried to cover it over with like, oh, they have they're at a root language of all languages or something like that, and so English is in there as well as French, and um, you know, that's asinine. Our, yeah, <laughs> I'm not a linguist, but that I mean that makes no sense at all. It would be like if you went to ancient Rome, could they all speak French? Well, of course not, because the language developed over centuries. Yeah, so I, yeah, so for whatever reason, she comes on scene, and that kind of just bothered me when she's like, "Welcome to Atlantis," and I'm like, "What?" And then, um, yeah, you're right. She just doesn't have a lot of personality. And then the the big tipping point was the crystal thing. She goes into the crystal seems to subsume or what like what's the word like she she gathers all that power and then she's like it's gonna be fine um (laughs) and walks into a metal cage like what happened there like there's there's a page missing in the movie um it's just i don't know you're making me like this movie less than i thought i did josh I'm sorry. No, no, I'm good. sorry. <laughs> because I actually want to like I like I said at the beginning like what's not to love. It's just uh, yeah, this it's just the back end. It's just the back end. Well, really. it just it, this movie needed to be two hour and a half movies instead of one hour and a half movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, If only if only. It's a near miss. That's why I said it's a near miss. Yeah, near, so. near miss is right. I, I walk back what I said earlier about being a slight <laughs> hit. It is a near miss. I liked a good deal of the movie, but you're right. It just it does not hold together. <laughs> See, and I thought you were being tongue-in-cheek when you called me the pessimist, but I obviously i have come through for you. <laughs> but usually I'm the one who hates stuff. I, I drug you down. I, if I haven't made you hate the Aristocats... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there is the cat. Oh, man. I wanted to talk about the absolutely hideous character design in this movie. Mm-hmm. Awful. <laughs> so it's, I'll say my part, and then you just run with that. Okay. So Mike Mike Mignola is the, the guy that they were they were styling it off. He's, he's, he's known for his comic book Hellboy. Um, okay, which is no- that makes sense. I, yeah, I figured it was a, this was a a pattern after something. Hellboy makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So yeah, there's a real stylistic choice there, um, and you know, kind of a kind of a cool one. You know, kind of cool to go after an indie comic and say, yeah, you know, like this is our action adventure comic e movie. So let's go with that. You know, like let's go with one of the the stars of that genre. Um, but you're I. I think I agree with you that it doesn't animate well. Yeah. Well, and it, especially not with Milo. Mm-hmm. Like his fingers are square, 
His nose is a square. His butt's a square. It's 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 very upsetting, and it makes it it makes it more difficult to kind of lose yourself in the movie. It it, it could work for background characters. It could work for certainly the the backgrounds themselves in this movie are good, but there's something kind of inhuman at the at the heart of the character design in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned the hands because apparently, so when they brought Mike on, they'd already been kind of using his style, but then they actually brought him in to nice be part of the Yeah, definitely. Um, and nice of him to say yes, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but they brought him in and, and he's watching footage and he says, man, I, I like the look of the hands. <laughs> and, the, and the guy sitting next to him says, uh, yeah, they're your hands. We had to, we had to do a whole class on like how to draw on your style. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> so. <laughs> how flattering for him you know it's like true, yeah. to, to come into a place and i mean the other little anecdote there is, was that uh um you know he he came across this poster where it had all like his artwork and it had notes on it you know about how he does different things and stuff and he's like i i had to go to the person who wrote the notes and ask him what some of this stuff meant because i did it you know like i wasn't doing it consciously you know like it's just my style of the way i do things so right it's invisible to him yeah but i mean i can see how it would work in a comic book but you're right when it when it's animated there's something very off-putting about it yeah that's that's the way i felt too Uh, like there's there's some really nicely done animation in this movie um but i think you're right like the character design detracts from it a little bit I mean, we've talked about this before that like stylization is is cool like we're, we're into it right like we i love sleeping beauty is still my favorite of these movies and sleeping beauty is really mm-hmm. heavily stylized but the place where they don't stylize is the characters themselves so you stylize mm-hmm. the backgrounds and you stylize the the kind of object world but you you keep the characters looking more human rather than more stylized. Not human, of course, but more human. Uh, Alice in Wonderland's yeah. another good one. Mm-hmm. Alice in Wonderland is off-putting and disorienting enough without having the characters look bizarre, too. Right. Yeah. Or even, like, 101 Dalmatians, you know, had some very unique stylized choices mm-hmm. of you know color and things like that, but like, yeah, the way it shows up in the humans and the dogs is is more traditional, I guess. But I mean, uh, but here too, Josh, it, it seems like they're taking a chance, and we should praise them for taking a chance, even if um, even if we don't think that the that they were ultimately successful. Right. Well, the area where I will say they were successful with this blending is like this, like the way they blend the CG and the 2D hand-drawn animation stuff i felt like was was some of the best we've seen i don't know if it tops tarzan like i think tarzan they they just did a a miracle work (laughs) with tarzan the way they blended those things but here like i mean they're putting care they're putting hand-drawn characters inside 3d animated um ships and stuff you know and and making it work they're putting you know hand-drawn characters on top of 3d rendered buildings and 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 the it's it's pretty seamless yeah, you know there's like, only a couple places one being that battle at the beginning where you can really uh-huh. see the 3d yeah um or it's yeah the computer computer generated is maybe the better i mean it's it is 3d computer generated it gets confusing because there's that that stupid way of watching movies where you put on the glasses it's also called 3d right and we're coming up on that era <laughs> once they decide to they got to get you to come to the theater somehow 
<laughs> yeah. Thank God that's over. So, You'd pay an extra five <laughs> bucks to watch some movie that had been hastily converted after it had already been made <laughs> to 3D. Awful. Yeah. So, yeah, I felt like the hand-drawn got a little lost in the CG, even, like, as far as, like, this movie is, um, it's it's a real blend, and, and sometimes the CG actually does does a lot of the heavy lifting of making the movie look good, um, which is not something that we've been able to say so far, no, right? That's true. <laughs> that's true. So I felt like they did really good. And, yeah, the, the layout artist on this is a guy named Ed, Ed Gerger, uh, or Gertner, I guess, um, who's who's done some stuff before, but really, I felt like, really got the, the cinematic look of this movie with the widescreen and um, some of the, just the way the shots are laid out, you know, um, especially in some of those cavern scenes and stuff, really, really impressive. And then the background artist who's doing all, like, all those backgrounds is uh, a lady by the name of Lisa Keen, who's still working at Disney. She's, you know, I think her latest credit was on Frozen 2. So. Oh, wow. She's, yeah. But props to both of them. They did, they did really cool stuff. Well, and certainly whoever whoever worked on the Leviathan scene made something remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like that, that whole scene is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super cool. And very cutting edge for its time, I think. But it still holds up, too. Unlike unlike that opening scene, it didn't it did did not um, it did not look CGI. Mhm. So yeah, lots of cool stuff in there. The other thing I would like to mention, um, so this movie got a lot of uh, criticism in the anime world for being uh, close to plagiarism of a movie or a. A series rather called Nadia the Secret of the Blue Water okay. which I've not I've not seen and so I can't speak to um, the the directors claim to have like never heard of it you know just basically it's it's a it's, it's kind of a, a coincidental thing um, the one that it reminded me of and there's a connection to all these actually is uh, Laputa Castle in the Sky which is a another Miyazaki film um, I got some real Castle in the Sky vibes from this movie and interestingly so Miyazaki had pitched some of the ideas for Nadia, um, the, and then left that company. But I think his ideas stayed and ended up using the ideas um, in Laputa. And then of course Laputa came out before Nadia, so I'm sure it had an influence. You know, I'm sure they influenced each other. And so, um, anyway, so seeing seeing the the similarities between Laputa and this movie, I was like, oh yeah, there's a lot there. Um, and uh, so the one thing that um, what's his name? Kirk, uh, not Kirk. Kirkwise. Uh, oh yeah, Kirkwise. It is Kirk. Okay. Uh, so he, the next thing that his next credit on IMDb or whatever is he does the American version of uh, Spirited Away. Like he oversees the, I guess the the dub or whatever. I don't know exactly what a director does when a movie's already made and just being translated. Um, which is another Miyazaki film. So I got to believe that he was aware of this movie, you know, um, and, and was drawing upon it a little bit. So, well, I mean, aren't the, aren't all the Disney animators famously huge Miyazaki fans? Yeah. I mean, definitely nowadays, I feel like they're much more open about that. And especially they were very open about it during the time when Disney and and studio Ghibli had a, you know, Disney was basically distributing a lot of the, the Ghibli movies in America that, that, um, 
that relationship has has broken down and they're 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 not doing that anymore but um yeah so at this at the time that this movie came out Laputa Castle in the Sky if you'd seen it I think you only would have seen it like the Japanese version or uh like a you know like a fan dub or something you know like it wasn't released um in the states until 2010 as far as I could tell online so and Laputa Castle in the Sky is, is hugely influential in Japan. Like a lot of movies rely on it and a lot of video games as well. And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to just throw that in there <laughs> in case anybody cared. Laputa Castle in the Sky is a great movie and you should go watch it if you, if you get the chance. And it def, but definitely there's a lot of similarities between it and, and this movie. Huh. I have heard of that, but I haven't seen it. I think the only um, Miyazaki film I've seen is Spirited Away. Yeah, that was the really big one. I mean, that one got a Disney release first, and like it was. I mean, I, I don't know if it was the first one Disney released, but it was it was the first like really. I felt like when that partnership was like Disney was really pushing the Ghibli films at that that time when Spirited Away came out. It's always kind of funny to me, like in the you know when when the Disney animators are saying things like. Well, we really wanted to do something that's never been done in animation before, and we really wanted to do like a, a an, an action adventure film, you know. And it's like, well, um, first of all, you guys have done it before. Let's <laughs> <You know? laughs> sweep those under the rug. But second of all, like, there's a whole like history going back to the '80s of those kind of movies in Japan, you know. And so, and I know you guys are drawing upon them, so like, yeah. It'd be nice if they fessed up a little more, but I, I I get it, you know, because I mean, it's a very it's a niche thing you know like it'd be like um i i don't know like you know some some big artist uh calling out some some little niche indie artist or something you know like it's just not going to happen because your audience doesn't even know what you're talking about right right well yeah and as far as the as far as the people who they would have been making that statement to in 2001 were concerned that movie those movies didn't exist you know Right, exactly. And it's much easier to say, like, oh, yeah, we were influenced by Jules Verne, because they were, you know, and, like, Jules Verne is a known quantity, you know, and uh, and Laputa Castle in the Sky was influenced by Jules Verne. Like, I mean, they're, they're you know, like, they're just going back, you know, a couple generations on, on up the, or up the family tree of, of inspiration, you know, but, so it's not like they're being dishonest. But well, it's they just... kind of are, I agree, I mean... <laughs> Especially, why not say, oh, you know, we we were really into these Miyazaki movies and maybe help them get a an American audience instead of pretending pretending that they weren't important to your development. That seems yeah. that seems weird to me. Yeah, it seems almost I like if you're if you're an animator at the most powerful animation studio in the world, maybe you owe it to some of these smaller films that you take ideas from to say, oh, well, here's where I got them from. Maybe you should go watch them. Yeah, that's yeah. It's that's not true. like you're at DreamWorks taking something from Disney and pretending you didn't. Like Miyazaki <laughs> might might have been able to use their help in 2001. Yeah, that's that's true. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's the maybe there was some sort of under the table thing there where that's that's why Disney started distributing their films. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they felt bad. I'm sure they just thought they could make money off of it. I imagine that's the reason Disney does most things they do. Yeah, that's probably true, too. <laughs> and they did, right? I mean, the only reason most Americans have heard of Miyazaki is because Disney distributed those movies. That's that's true. 
Although uh, to be fair to Disney, I just I don't know. Like the I feel like I mean it's funny we've talked about this before at some point in the show, but like what you just said, like they're just in it for the money. Like like Disney's just the mercenaries in this movie. Like surely there's got to be a Milo somewhere in Disney, or like why do they keep making movies about the Milos of the world? No, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think as a corporation, they're 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 <laughs> adventure capitalists. <laughs> but I, I imagine there are people there who do it. I mean, we know there there are people there who are doing it for the art, who are putting all this effort in, even though you would never even notice it mm-hmm. because it because it means something to them. The what's the what's the Keen, what's Keen's name? The Bill Keen's son. Oh, uh, Glenn. Oh, what is his Glenn name? Keen. Yeah, Glenn. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the Pixar guys, especially early on, certainly seem to be doing it for the art. Mm-hmm. And, but, I mean, th- that kind of that kind of tension has always existed, right? We talk, we call Walt Disney a genius. But really, mm-hmm. what, his geni- what his genius was uh, was for business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to some degree, that, that undermines the, the purity of the art. But also, when has art ever been completely divorced from commercial concerns? So... I don't know. It's true. Yeah, it's a, it's a there's a tension there that has to exist. It's a it's a positive kind of tension, you know. Like there's a it's the um you know uh there's a point in this movie where where Milo's trying to pitch his tent and it's all saggy sag down, you know, because he doesn't have enough tension on it. Like at some point you need the tension to raise the tent. Right. Right. So, so that the, the 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 tension line between the business side and the art side is is what's holding Disney's tent up, and so. Yeah, but I mean, no doubt, sometimes it it moves too heavily toward the the business side. I think of all those directed to DVD sequels, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that's interesting is as soon as uh, Lasseter becomes head of animation, he cancels all of this. Mm-hmm. Yep. As if to signal we're gonna we're gonna make decisions based on artistic merit instead of on um, instead of on how much money we can make off of them, and then they still make a bunch of money. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> they just print money over there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I will confess, Josh, I did not listen to the song that played over the closing credits. It seemed so bad that I just immediately turned it off without even thinking about it. Is it as bad as the, the first 15 <laughs> seconds make it sound? <laughs> um, I think so. I watched this movie twice, and I did listen the first time, but not the second time. So I, I don't have anything to say about it. How does it compare to the one at the end of uh, Emperor's Book <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's the lowest possible bar to jump. <laughs> Overall, though, I felt like the sound, sound design, and uh, you know, music, you know, background stuff was was good. I didn't. I there's there's people who are huge fans of of there's a, there's basically a, I think it's a trilogy of movies that this same guy did. He did um, uh, dinosaur. Um, Atlantis and Treasure Planet. Yeah, it's James, I think it's James Newton there. Howard, right? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I didn't write them down, so <laughs> you could say anything, and I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, people really love him. I, I, I feel like it was, it was good. Yeah. 
Yeah, he um, he he's a, a pretty notable film composer. He, he's mm-hmm. he's done a lot of stuff. He's uh, M Night Shyamalan's go-to composer. Oh really? Yeah. Okay, I'm, and the, the yeah, music yeah. in those movies is always really good, even when the movie's not. Yes, I agree. <laughs> as, as it often is not. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Good for him. Yeah, I tried to pay better attention the second time through. There's just a lot happening in this movie, like you said uh, earlier, you know? And so, like, there's so much to pay attention to that, that for me, the music kind of just, you know, faded into the into the background a little bit. Um, well, and the thing, so. the thing about scores is if you're noticing them, it means they're probably not good. Or they're excellent, right? Right, right. or they're, like, world historical good. Yeah, but uh, or you've seen the movie nine hundred gazillion times. Right, right, right. Cause, like because what the score is supposed to do is draw you further into the movie, not remark on the score. Right, it's a little bit like drums. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but I think there's there's something there's something to that, like a, a rhythm section in a rock band for the most part, unless it's Paul McCartney playing bass or, or, you know, John Bonham on drums, you're, you shouldn't really notice the rhythm section unless you're trying to, then it's not supposed right. to call attention to itself. Yeah. It's, it's more like you're, you're supposed to feel it more than hear it. Right. Almost. Right. And the, I, I would is, say the score works the same way. So yeah. if you don't notice the score and you're not looking for the score, it, it probably means it's all right. Yeah. It's not that, that big syrupy score that, you know, it's trying to make you cry during the emotional parts. Mm-hmm. No, I felt like it was very like there's there's some subtle moments in it, um, and and like I said, it, it plays well with the sound design. The different there's a lot in here. You know, like the the different the Atlantean equipment. You know, is all ethereal sounding, and then the you know like the 1940 machinery is all you know like that steampunk and grinding of gears and boilers that don't work and stuff, you know, metal, metal sound. It's, it's, it's cool. And the, the soundtrack, you know, or the score behind it, you know, it all plays nicely with it. So. Yeah, it's good. How'd you feel as a, uh, as an English professor about the fact that like, um, that our hero is a linguist. Our hero is a linguist, and like really, the heart of this movie, like everything, well, at the beginning at least, even yeah, at the beginning especially, everything depends on a book. Like it's all, you know, like this book is guiding them through this, you know, this crazy mess. It's like you know, he's he's got to he's got to decipher and read um, to to get them out of all their troubles and get them, you know, down the right paths and. And all this sort of thing. It was nice. Have we had another scholar as the hero of one of these movies? Maybe Merlin. Yeah, Merlin's a scholar. Um, oh, that's a good question. Who's another scholar hero? <laughs> uh, maybe Basil of Baker Street, but not really. You, you, yeah, he's. You a... have this guy who who's not very practical at all, right? Like he's he's stuck up in the library, and yet he's the one who knows. He's the only one who knows anything, really, about about Atlantis. He knows more about mm-hmm. Atlantis than the Atlantans do. Yeah. 
So that was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's another place where this owes something to Indiana Jones, as you said earlier. Yeah. And a little something to, I don't know, like, uh, would you say that there's a, an element of, like, if we didn't have, like, a sacred text in the West, you know, like, like if Christianity or, you know, before that Judaism, like, are people of the book, you know what I mean? Like, um, even Islam with the Quran a little bit, you know, like, it's the... The book is so central. Um, it, it really has shaped our, our culture in a way. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. The the kind of negative postmodern term for that is logocentrism. Mm. And I mean, it's definitely true that I, my students asked me once why Thomas Aquinas is so concerned with making sure Aristotle's right about everything, and you know, I didn't know. So I went to David Grubbs and asked him, and he said, you know. Um, back then, if it was written in a book, it was true, mm. especially if it was written in an old book. So I, I, I think our, our fairy tales, our adventure stories have, have maintained something of that. Like it would, I don't think it would occur to most of us watching a movie like this or Indiana Jones that, uh, you know, it could be a lie written in this ancient text that we're, <laughs> that we're, that we're following. <laughs> it just doesn't, just doesn't really work that way in the stories, Right. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't, I think I, I mean, that's, I, I, I don't know. I don't know my world religions well enough, but I, I feel like that's not true as much in the East, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I know a very small amount about like Hinduism and Buddhism and, and a little bit about Confucianism. Um, so I, I don't really feel comfortable pronouncing on that, but I would, I would suspect you're right. Yeah. I mean, certainly nobody respects the book more than, Islam. I mean, the 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 writing of the the dictation, the writing of the Quran, is the equivalent event to the incarnation in, mm-hmm. in Islam. You're not even supposed to translate the the Quran. I mean, you you can, but if you're reading a translation, you're not really reading the Quran, from my understanding. Yeah, I've, yeah, that's my understanding too. But I'm I'm with you. I don't want to pronounce anything on it because I don't I don't know enough about right. it. But. But you, I mean, you're probably more familiar with Eastern religions than I am, just because you lived in China for so long. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that was that wasn't really what I was doing over there. So, <laughs> but yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, there is. I mean, obviously, there's you know, con- there's words of Confucius that are written down and 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 things, but it's it's not revered in the same way that like a sacred text is, and I believe that's the same with like Hinduism. Um, Buddhism, you know, like there's kind of these, yeah, core tenets to follow, but that's, that's it, you know, like it's not, not the same, not the same sort of devotional quality that I feel like you see in this movie where like he's always reading the book and he's reading it over and over and he's trying to unlock its secrets and, um, it's, it's their literal guide between life and death, you know, which I just thought was, yeah, kind of, kind of interesting and, and something that, you know, at least has some spiritual resonances of it. What well, is it. their guide, except they they're not even able to read it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They need a they need a high priest. <laughs> I guess. 
Well, and, 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 and maybe that's what we should be interrogating about why this why nobody there can read it because at the time when they were writing almost nobody would have been able to read widespread literacy is a you know modern phenomenon right well yeah but we don't know for the atlanteans because they're you know that's true. they're so technically advanced but yeah i mean you're right well and the, you know there's a whole part in this movie that is cut out probably most likely rightly so they were going to start the movie with kind of a, the journey of this um, of this shepherd's book. Like, where did it come from? You know, because the the thing it's not really touched on in the movie. And I think it helped me the second time through because I'd watched the documentary. I think it helped me understand the movie a little better. But like the, the idea is that um, this shepherd somehow, you know, tripped upon Atlantis, you know, one time. Um, and wrote about it, wrote its secrets, wrote how to get there, you know, how to navigate to get to, to be able to be there. And then that book has been fought over for generations, you know, um, and all different types of cultures and stuff have fought over this book because the power hidden in Atlantis is, is so valuable, but this book is, the, is, is literally the only way to get there, you know? Um, oh, I think it's good they didn't start with that. Oh yeah, I agree. But like, um, yeah, you're right. Like maybe maybe the Atlanteans don't really have her. I mean, for all we know, the shepherd in, invented their written language for them. You know, right, right. At the, at the, at the a, time, there, um, at the time Atlantis supposedly existed, there wouldn't have been writing very many places. But of course, they also had electric power and things like that. You know, yeah. the myth of it, the and, myth and of Atlantis is whatever whatever technology you're supposed to have next week. The Atlanteans had. <laughs> Well, I want the, I want one of those flying uh, fish. Yeah. <laughs> you just well, you you turn a key. I thought that that was uh, that was what was funny about it. <laughs> well, it's it's a quarter turn, Michael, That's true. with your hand on the on the on the thing. <clears throat> Until you're the prospector, and then you can just hop on. It's fine. Doesn't matter. I didn't see him turn any keys. He just was very excited. <laughs> that's that's funny. I didn't notice that. <laughs> My wife pointed that out to me. She's like, because I mean, as you said, there's very few Atlanteans in that final battle, so it's all of them like jumping onto these, uh, whatever you'd call them, you know, fish fish motorcycles to go uh, <laughs> <laughs> to go fight Roar. <laughs> but uh, Milo's the only one with the key. Like everybody else is just jumping on somehow. So. Maybe when you turn one on, they all work. Oh yeah, they're connected somehow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's about it for me. I don't know what else you got. I wonder. Do you think this is better or worse than Black Cauldron? Oh man, I kind of knew you were going to ask me that, but I didn't really think through an answer. I think it's better. Me too. I'm not sure why I think it's better. I don't know if it's just the modernness of it. Um, you might like sci-fi more than you like high fantasy. Maybe that's possible. Yeah. The animation's certainly better. But it could. And it, the animation oh, yeah, of Robin the, Hood is worse than both of them, and Robin Hood's ten times better than both of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it could just be uh, what's it called the. Um, Recent recent bias is right, that what it's yeah, called? We, we we haven't watched Black Cauldron for a year and a half, so at yeah, least I haven't. Maybe you've up. gone back and looked at it. 
No, I'd like to. Um, it's just there's only so much time in the world, you know. <laughs> Once, once Michael Eisner comes on to be our guest and pays us fifty million dollars, <laughs> then you can quit your job and then I'll quit my job and uh, spend a lot of time watching whatever he tells you to watch. <laughs> Anything, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I'll have to revisit. I, I would really like to revisit Black Cauldron. Um, I remember enjoying it and thinking, you know, that I could potentially really enjoy it. So. Right. I just remember thinking, oh, this isn't a bad movie, despite everybody always telling me it's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. And I got a little bit of that here, too. I, I went in expecting to hate it, and I, I think I overcorrected and thought that I liked it, when really I just think it's more interesting than it, I I had assumed it would be. Mm-hmm. This is definitely yeah. not a movie you would want to hang a studio on, though. You know what I mean? Like... Right. If this had been the first Disney movie, there wouldn't be a Disney. Yeah. If this had been the tenth Disney movie, there wouldn't have been a Disney. It's, yeah. It's because they're in this kind of decadent period where they've got more money than Crisis, and they can, to use an appropriate reference for Atlantis, um, they, you know, they can they can make this movie that's a kind of interesting failure, a near miss, as you say, and and keep keep trucking. Mm-hmm. But eventually they're going to put too many of those in a row. And, and I, I assume the future of the studio really was up for grabs uh, around about 2007. Yeah. Well, it's just unfortunate that they're, it's it's coinciding with the rise of CGI. And so what we're going to see, I think, is that they're, as usual, they're going to learn the wrong lesson. And they're going to think, oh... Pixar and um, to a lesser extent DreamWorks, but um, definitely Pixar was the, you know, just making money like crazy for a little while. Uh, and but the lesson they're going to learn is like, oh, audiences don't want to see traditional hand-drawn animation. They want to see computer-generated animation. Not audiences want stories that actually move you. Right. Or, or they <laughs> you want know? Shrek, uh, which... <laughs> Came right. out the same year as this and is a vastly inferior movie. Yeah, but I mean, somehow, I mean, so in some way, I say they learned the wrong lesson, but in some way, the audiences gave them the wrong lesson because I think Shrek vastly outperformed this movie also, oh, yeah, right? Absolutely. Shrek was a huge hit. <clears throat> and so, yeah, in some ways, they, yeah. Maybe I learned the wrong lesson. I don't know. <laughs> Although the DreamWorks property that went up directly against this is a movie called Road to El Dorado. Do you remember that movie? Um, only that it exists. Yeah. I never saw it. Well, it was supposed to go up against Emperor's New Groove, which is set in South America as Road to El Dorado is, but instead it ended up going against this, and this flopped. That movie, that movie crashed like the Hindenburg. I mean... I don't. I don't know that anybody's seen it. Mm. I've never seen it. It could be the best movie in the world for all I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't imagine we're ever going to go through the DreamWorks movies because it would necessitate my watching four Shrek movies plus Puss in Boots, <laughs> and it's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I, will, I, I have no interest you in can doing get a that. Second, you can get a different co-host for that that series if you'd like. But I won't. Uh, I won't. I won't subject myself to it. So, I mean, maybe one day I'll see Road to El Dorado. Um, but 
like say what you will about Atlantis, it did crush Road to El Dorado. Yeah. Again, with a very low bar. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, we got a, a weird little movie up next, right? It's uh, Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, it's something and it's one I different. really like. It is completely different. Well, it's still in the sci-fi genre, kind yeah, of. Yeah, it is. Ish. But it's a much smaller <laughs> movie than this is, you know? It's a, it's yeah. a family drama. Yes. With an Elvis yeah. soundtrack, so... With on the soundtrack, so I, I'm, yes, I'm really excited to talk about Lilo and Stitch. I, uh, that's a that's a family favorite in the Altman Schroeder household. I've seen it so. once. I watched it one day in college uh, between two classes. I went back to my apartment and watched it for some reason. Um, so I I remember almost nothing about it, and I have no particular feelings about it. But I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Okay, cool. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun and. I, this that movie I felt like was a real grower for me. I think the first time I saw it, it was. I mean, we can talk about it next. I think month, I'm gonna try to watch think, it twice. Yeah, that's, that's what I was gonna say. You should watch it a couple times because it is, like you said, it's so completely different. I think the first time it just it you get, you kind of got to get that like completely different like wash through and then and then uh, it, it's really it's really charming. I think so. But we will talk more about that next month. Um. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Uh, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh altman and I'm going to think of you guys every single day, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, Saturday until 2.